Pete Rollins. I'm oh. so excited. <laughs> <laughs> this guy is intense. I'll say. Yeah. I'll say. I loved this read, though, because it challenged me. You know, a lot of what we read... I kind of, I'm like, yeah, right. You know, it's sort of already preaching to the choir, if you will. Sure, yeah. But this book really challenged me. Agreed. It's a mind bender. Yeah. If you have been brought up or if you spent any time, you know, as a Christian, this throws everything on its head. So I just want to say we are Gift Girls Faith Book Club. And if you want to find us online, we're at giftgirls.blog or our email is giftgirlsfaith at gmail.com so you can email us or find out more about us listen to other episodes on our website we're also on apple podcasts and spotify um and without further ado we are reading the idolatry of god by pete rollins hi don i never even said hi well, we've been chatting I'm for a little while. So excited! So we're, <laughs> we're we're on the porch, right? We're outside, staying safe, um, and it on a lovely be day. More lovely, yes. <laughs> so I don't even know where to start with this book. So, how did this land in your lap? How did you come across it? Let's just start All right. there. So the first time I heard Pete Rollins on the. Robcast, yes. Rob Bell's uh, podcast. Same. Mm-hmm. And I think he did a series of three podcasts with Rob Bell, and I was glued to it. I just found it absolutely fascinating. And he has this outrageously cute Scottish accent, which helps. Indeed. <laughs> in fact, when I first started reading it, I was like playing around in my mind, you know, the theater person in me, like with, ooh, I, this is how it would sound if he was reading it to himself. <laughs> <laughs> Read by the author. Right. I really don't know where to jump in with this book. It's just like... You said this was recommended by a listener? Yes. Am I right? It was. Okay. Yes. And then I had heard of him because of Rob Bell. Right. And But I had never... I didn't even realize he was an author. Right. Although I probably heard that on the Robcast. And and then I think I mentioned it to you and you said... I've read that. You read that. And so I bought it and I started reading it. And he's very much a... um, He's a philosopher, and he's a theologian. He's not a pastor or anything like that. He writes very um, eloquently. There's not a lot of fluff. Right. It's really to the point, and it's some really big concepts that he kind of explains pretty simply. I think it's kind of remarkable how he can make some of these really kind of far-out ideas simple. Agreed, yeah. So I don't know, you want to jump right in with original sin or what? <laughs> well, what I, what I would say is to begin, I read this book years back, um, maybe a couple of years when, it, when he was interviewed by, by Rob Bell. And I remember zipping through it, like, you know, definitely challenging and definitely, but devouring it, you know? And then I had to reread, you know, in order to have a conversation about it that felt current and fresh. And I had a really hard time, like, plowing through to the end. And I guess because it's not the kind of book that I would say you can pick up and put down. Right. And that tends to be how I read, is I pick something up and then I put it down and I read something else for a while and put that down. And, you know, that kind of jump around. And you can't jump around. No, you can't. This is a commitment. And it's very cumulative. Do you want to get your papers? Don's papers are flying everywhere in the room. (laughs) See, Tanya has a notebook 
but I just write on little scraps of paper <laughs> that fly everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I would say, though, um, that this book is cumulative. So he builds on every yes. idea. So you can't skip around. It's not the book you can open in the middle. I mean, you can't. I had I to suppose. make note cards. That's what right. I did. Yeah. You know, he starts with original sin and mm -hmm. he builds on that. And so he's extremely clear in how he builds this sort of view of. Yes. I guess I'd say crucifixion is sort of where he is, is his sweet spot. Yeah. <laughs> Why are you laughing? About I don't know. That? that just sounds funny. <laughs> crucifixion is my sweet spot. Yes. Yeah. You don't see that on a t shirt too right. often. <laughs> But uh, I, I guess, like, he says, he lays out sort of idolat uh, idolatry and original sin mm -hmm. as being sort of one leads directly to the other. Yep. That original sin he talks about as the original lack or separateness from other, Yes. right? Which is so cool. And he talks about how sin means separate. Yes. And then, of course, that leads to idolatry because you want to fill that gap. You yes. want to solve that problem of having that lack yeah he first I will say that I'm probably going to contradict myself a bunch of times in this conversation because I sort of dip in and dip out of my understanding of what he's saying it's so counterintuitive to the flavor of Christianity that I you know have embedded in me that evangelical Christianity um even fundamentalist to a point, um, the whole idea of, you know this word better than I do, the substitution, atonement theory type Christianity. And he basically says that the way that we think about it, whether you think about it as a conservative or a liberal, where you think whether you think about Christ dying on the cross as an event that um, saves you from sin or that he died to show a way to sacrifice, you know, for the good of people. Either way, we need to think about it completely different. And he just sort of, like, wipes everything off the table and even flips the table over. I think he, he's talking about a completely different way of being in Christ. Um, and he even starts, like, in the introduction saying, he, first of all, he, he says this quite often, the Christ event. <laughs> you know, Rob Bell talks about the Jesus story. And Pete Rollins will talk about the Christ event, which I think is really interesting, you know. And he says that it's like an atomic event that obliterates the way in which we exist in the world, which sounds so much more appealing to me and so much more like the Jesus I suspect is real, um, that he would obliterate all of the systems but figuring out like how I um, approach that and how I take it in is really challenging because it's a lot of deconstructing. If there if there was a book for deconstruction, I mean this is this is one of them. So here we go. Yeah, I want to read. He all right. So it's on page one fifteen, and he's quoting Matthew uh, chapter ten. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. 
Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Talk about an atomic event. Mm. That's sort of one of those verses like we read and we just kind of go, oh, it's scary. Super And yet the very part yeah. at the end, we hear all the time, whoever finds their life will lose it and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. It's the classic example of we're so tempted to just pull out that one little part that feels good and not try to understand the other part. And Peter Rollins refers to this verse as breaking up our concept of identity, you know, just like in Ephesians where right. there's no longer a slave or free, female or male, that right. Christ cuts across all of those identities. And it reminds me of what you said way back in several episodes ago about is Jesus the butter that goes across all breads? Oh, yeah. Right, that <laughs> Pete Rollins says Christianity is not another category along exactly. with these. It, it, it cuts it right down the middle into people that lose that identity of whatever it is, male, female, and become identityless really and how i was raised on that scripture was that you didn't become identityless you became a christian so christian was your primary identity that's what mattered which basically translated into a moral code you know a certain way of behaving and looking in the world um not even necessarily doing i want to say but you know we've talked about this a bunch of times adhering to a certain set of beliefs you know doing certain behaviors, that kind of thing. And so that's what I mean by flipping the table over is he, he takes that same scripture and yes, it cuts across all of that. And in my reading of it, it was always, and then Jesus replaces it with, or Paul rather replaces it with Christian. That is your, your primary identity. And Pete Rollins is saying, what he's saying is you don't need an identity. You don't have to have a tribe that you belong to. That certainty is foolishness. It, it's not certain. And that it closes you off from the other. Yes. Which just creates another category, another wall of hostility. Yes. Right? That the whole point of becoming, of losing that identity is that you can enter in fully with the other. Yes. And he talks about listening, and that I found that really remarkable. I bet, like, Therapists would just love that. The whole thing about instead of listening from your point of view, you listen as if... From the other, from yeah. being in the other person's shoes. Right, yeah. like what they're thinking about you. Yes. It's well, so we're, we're jumping way forward, and I think to set the stage, because we will get to that. Sorry, um, it's my fault. I'm just no, so no. excited. Well, and <laughs> this book goes all over the place, you know? So, but if you don't build it up, it's hard to grasp. Right. It's hard to grasp anyway, and this is right. what I mean. Like, I'm going to dip in and out. I'm going to contradict. Yeah. You know, people listening to this are going to be like, if you've read the book, that's not what he says, you know. <laughs> so we are students and, and not, not experts. We're students, but also anytime you approach a work of art or a, or a book, you are collaborating with the author, with the artist. Oh, that's great. So, you know, yeah. we are reading this book. Of course, we have to bounce it against our own thoughts and, and emotions. And, and then the result of what we think or what our experience is or what would be this conversation is a collaboration. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. So you started explaining the idea of original sin, which is, you know, this like long standing, you know, theological concept. Basically, my interpretation of original sin is that like 
you're a sinner, you were born a sinner, you're depraved, you know, you, <laughs> you need help. And he has some sections in here where he lays that out very articulately. But I think everybody gets that. If you've, if you've spent time in churches at all, you've probably heard that. And then, but the idol, this, so how he describes original sin, like you said, is this gap, this, not just a missing piece, because what I thought about all the time reading through this is, have you ever heard of this notion of, um, I don't know who coined it, the God-shaped hole? Right? Oh, I've heard, heard God-shaped vacuum. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Void. Yeah. You know, I think I've seen it, like, even in caricatures where, like, the hole is the shape of a heart, you know, in the middle of your chest. That's the hole that God fills, you know, because he comes into your heart. Um, those types of things. And he describes that void as a misconception. This book fills me with questions, and so I'm gonna, they're just going to start probably spewing out. He describes the birth of a child when you're born. You have this birth like physically into the world, and then you sort of have this second birth, this is what he calls it, um, into awareness. Where as a, and he says, um, I forget who calls it this, the mirroring phase, where the infant starts to understand that they are separate from the mother. You know, where they have an inner life and then there's an outer world. And so this development of the sense of I and then the other, you know, so there's me and then there's the limit of my skin and then there's everything outside of me, um, all of it, the other. And that sense that it used to all be me is what creates the gap. And yet it never was all you. It, it, it felt that way to you. It's a nothing. Like he says, it's, it's this, the lack right. or original sin, it comes from nothing. Right. There is no true, like you said, it's not all me. Right. The gap isn't there. And the idol is this other thing that then fills that gap or supposedly fills it. It's something that we attach to, we attach meaning to, um, and he... This is the part that I remembered from my first reading. Um, he refers to something called the MacGuffin. Have you heard, do you remember this? So apparently in film, it, it was like an Alfred Hitchcock type of phrase where the MacGuffin is the term used to describe the thing that the characters will do anything for. They will sacrifice everything for. Um, it moves the you know, storyline along. And it's the thing that one, if they get it, the world will be good. You know, everything will, will work out. And I remember that it was such a funny term and it's such a great like little piece to take with you because we all have them. We all have that thing, even if you can't name it sometimes. Um, there are times in my life when the MacGuffin was one thing, you know, and then it morphs into another and I think primarily I have thought about it as relationships, intimacy in relationships. So, I mean, it speaks directly to the gap, you know, kind of thing. Where as a young woman, I thought, you know, if I could just get married, you know, to the right person, um, that's when I'll be fulfilled. You know, mm -hmm. I'll have meaning. It'll, it will all, like, it will all make sense. But I, that void will be gone. So can you relate to that at all, yes. the MacGuffin? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is just with theater. 
Mm. You know, I chose this impossible career and then I moved out of New York City because I fell in love. Mm-hmm. You know, I know it's, it's a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's okay. A pastor that I, I a pastor I used to have uh, used to say, be really careful about saying, well, God, I, you know, God told me or it was a sign from God, because then it makes it really hard for anyone to dispute or ask questions uh, and that sort of thing. But there are a few times in your life when you do feel like that it is destiny or that it is God sort of saying, this is the way you, you will go. Mm-hmm. And so I did feel that way when I met Scott. And so it wasn't, it wasn't easy, but I, it, it felt inevitable in a beautiful way mm-hmm. that I would leave New York City despite like, how things were starting to roll along there for me. And I would try to replant myself up here. Mm-hmm. And and then other things became more important, but always feeling like in those early years, like the ultimate would be if I could just be a successful actor. If I could say that I made my living with only doing acting work and not taking any kind of other work, no waiting tables, no all of that. That was the MacGuffin. If I can say that this year I completely supported myself through my art, that will be when I am happy and fulfilled and when I have really... Arrived. Arrived. And yes. so that was definitely my idol. And and part of my conversion experience, if you will, was seeing that for what it was uh-huh. and and really laying that down. Yeah. And it was still hard. Yeah. That's a great... I can't even call it an example because it's your life. But that, I think that is exactly what this gets to, which is so personal, you know, for each of us. And, and like, you know down deep you know like it's a gut level kind of a thing I'm going to jump ahead in the book then too and and say like did you what he describes Jesus doing on the cross that third way is Jesus kind of saying you want to make me the idol but I'm not yes and 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 whispering like it's okay if you don't believe in me because I don't believe in myself like he as that as that as the idol I am not the thing that's going to give you fulfillment and, uh, you know, make all your dreams come true and make everything, I can't believe, right. And yet I always think of Jesus as coming to make everything right, you know? Um, and he, He's he, not the solution, he's the way. I think, well, that's like, well that's said, yeah. something, he doesn't say that exactly, no, but I that's think sort that's of well what I take from, from that, yeah. that we can't have certainty It's not what he came for to give us certainty. Right. Did you have the sense in the process, because I know it wasn't just a one moment where you're like, okay, my life is going to go this direction, not, you know, this this one way that I had planned for it to go. So I'm sure that happened over time and is a process. But over those points in time, did you ever feel like your career saying, don't worry, that's not the thing that's going to make you happy? Did you have that sense? Feeling that my career said that? Well, because what he says is we will continually make idols. He calls us idol factories. Yeah. You know, like we just keep making them. Yes. And what and we can't undo it through an intellectual exercise, which I think is very true, and yet it's of course it's where I lean, right? But he says what it takes is, and he uses the example of like a woman who thinks having a luxury car is going to be like the moment that she arrives when she's driving around in this car. And then the, she gets the car or she sees the car. I can't recall the details. And the car says to her, I'm not the thing that's going to make you happy. So that does seem like a transformative type of experience. 
that I feel like I can relate to. I, I have had times when I realized, like, my marriage is not going to be the end-all, be-all of my life, even though I thought that's what it was. And the expectations that I had of it because of that hope or thought or motivation. Is the dog barking too much? Or I is think it? it's all right. Okay. The dog is barking. Okay. Sorry. All right. I wasn't sure if that's what you were... <laughs> He's protecting us from the woods. <laughs> Good thing. Um, I don't know that I've ever had my marriage whisper to me and say, I'm not the thing that's going to make you happy. But I've had those moments where I've realized it. You know, I've had those moments where I've realized, like, Dawn, you have to be whole in yourself. You know that phrase of, I remember the first time I ever saw the phrase, you are enough. It's kind of a cliche now, written on something, maybe a mug or something. I honestly couldn't figure out what that meant for, you know, a few seconds. You are enough. Like, what does that mean? And I've pondered it. I mean, that sounds silly. But I really thought that, like, melding with another person, that almost like, for me, as a female, if I could just disappear into another person, it would be better. And then discovering all those ways where that's not what I want. You know, I don't want to disappear. I don't want to become so melded to someone else that I don't have my own separate thoughts and my own fortitude and, you know, um, identity. And, but that really has taken a long time for me to develop. And I wished that it had whispered to me earlier. Well, and I have thing. to say, I don't feel like my career has whispered that to me because I'm still hoping in uh-huh. some way that, and I'm still working, right. you know, here and there. And, and so I guess I still sometimes have hopes that it will be, that it will fill the gap. I think I still struggle with that a little bit. Uh-huh. Not necessarily the making a living at it, but to be able to do it enough that I feel like I feel valuable, you know, that uh-huh. I feel like a success or that... Um, I, I, I have had, I did have one moment early on, um, it was when my third child had, was a tiny infant, and I had a callback at a theater that would be really like, I would have been really, really proud to work there and get that job, and it was a great contract, and I drove up there to the callback, and it was, you know, a, almost a two-hour drive. And with a, an equity contract, you know, it's eight shows a week. Uh-huh. And I remember just being like, I can't do this. Like, I don't want to do this. Yeah. And this is just, this is just traveling two hours, let alone actors that travel all over the world and they don't see their families for months. Like, I don't want that. Right. So it was a realization of like something else is more important. So that's not really the same thing as an idol, but it was a moment where I kind of felt like sort of the the humor in it, in the fiction that uh-huh. I had built around it, and he uses that word a bit, yeah. like that we realize our own fictions. Yes. Um, or the masks that we wear for ourselves. Yes. Right? That yes. we are all... And in, in that, that leads to something I do want to read in the book. So he's talking about, um, let's see, in Matthew chapter 23, and he says, Jesus is here... So this is Pete Rollins speaking... Jesus is here pointing out the gulf that exists between how these teachers present themselves and what is buried in their hearts. These teachers have an image of being upright, good, and moral, but Jesus is saying that this image covers over what lies inside. It is tempting to think that Jesus is chastising these leaders because of their inner darkness. That's what I've always thought, right? Right. 
But this doesn't really make sense in relation to the wider trajectory of the Gospels, which accepts people in their brokenness. Mm. The issue at hand is the disparity between the image they present, an image they no doubt affirm, and the reality. They are covering over what lies within by offering a false image, much like an alcoholic who might deny the truth of his addiction even to himself. Mm-hmm. So he's saying that that is what Jesus is objecting to, is lying to ourselves. Yeah, which... <sighs> If this isn't the year for that. Right. Right? I mean, that's essentially describing how I have felt about my own participation in any type of social justice or anti-racism work, you know, that I lie to myself. You know, I cling to this idea of I'm a good person. I'm not a racist. You know, I cling to that so that I can't see the parts of me and the ways in which I participate in this ongoing corruption toward people, this ongoing exploitation of people, this ongoing travesty. And that is completely disconcerting. (laughs) So I was happy when he says the things about like, and this can be a troubling experience, you know, this, and it's not a lack of faith that gets you there. You know, it's, it's how faith works. You know, which is very comforting to me that, okay, just to use this scenario, that I have things that I can apologize for, but that doesn't really do it. I have to change how I see. I have to change what I do. I have to change um, the choices I make, how I prioritize things. Getting uncomfortable. That's how I felt about it. And it's hard. The willingness to... Uh, step into not just a place of humility but to be humiliated like in, yes. in the um, in the learning and be willing to be humiliated so I think one of the things we're leaving out is what Pete Rollins talks about what makes the idol one of the like the the um, what does he call it like the tool or the there's a particular thing that makes the idol idol like to us and that's that is- prohibition like oh right right the no The denial of it. So if it's something that you readily have access to or it happens, you don't idolize it. You know, it becomes just part of your experience or what you take in. And he says that, you know, for Paul, the Apostle Paul, the law is the no that appears to be opposed to the structure it actually creates and upholds. So I've always thought of the law as what Jesus came to abolish kind of thing or or. And yet, I think what he's saying is Jesus came to show that he's not just, like, doing one better. He's showing the impotence of the law. Like, yeah. it's not, it's a flimsy kind of a facade, kind of a um, the emperor, scaffold. The emperor yes. in the his emperor's, new clothes? What yeah. Is yeah. Yeah. He uses that example. Right. And shows it for what it is. That it's the thing that creates, helps create the desire surrounding the idol and I thought that was interesting he does refer to a lot of movies and tv shows which is just fun and for anybody who like enjoys pop culture and that sort of thing it's just kind of a it just makes it entertaining to read it in a way like he talks about Wally that movie which we have loved as a family he broke it down in a way I never thought about but uh, it, it was just a really great example of exactly what he's talking about. So it's uh-huh. just fun. That's just a fun element of the book to make something that could be kind of a heady, dry subject a little bit more. 
And he tells good stories, yeah. too, of his own, you know, and um, uses them as parables, kind of, a, you know, kind of. So it gives you a, some traction with it and a way to think about it. I have a quote here on page 80 that I wanted to read. Okay. So this is in the chapter entitled, Be Part of the Problem, Not the Solution. <laughs> I just thought that was really interesting. <laughs> I'm not sure I understand what that means yet, I'll admit. Uh-huh. Um, but he says, political freedom often leads to a society with greater material wealth and better opportunities for the population, which are to be highly valued. But there is another, more radical form of freedom hinted at in the Gospels. Not the freedom to pursue what we believe will satisfy us, but the freedom from the pursuit of mm-hmm. what we believe will satisfy us. Yeah. And that's sort of the subversive, kind of hidden, unexplored way that he's getting at through the whole book, I feel like. Right. We're sort of the landscape that we've been taught to see as Christians kind of just disintegrates and falls apart. Yes, um, and he talks about that mm-hmm. exploding from the inside. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't know if we've done a good enough job at describing it to move on to like, but how do you live that way? That's, you know, really the question. Like if what he says on page 86 kind of stopped me in my tracks And he says, um, the good news of Christianity is you can't be fulfilled. You can't be made whole. You can't find satisfaction. (laughs) And he calls that the good news. He says the good news is not simply a confrontation with the reality that total fulfillment and certainty are not possible, but rather is found in the joyful embrace of this insight, an embrace that robs the reality of its oppressive sting. It places the entire framework into question and opens up the possibility of a salvation from this frame. I love that. I'm so glad you read that quote because that... I paraphrased and, you know, kind of got all those statements in there, but it's really that same That really sums page. it up, though. That, I mean, mm-hmm. I think, in a way, that that is the thing that makes this book so outrageous and so intriguing. Yes. It brought up all the questions for me, though, when I've tried to do that in my life, when I've realized that that I'm sort of motivated and working towards something that is this self-fulfilling, it's like a hamster wheel, you know, like it's just, it keeps going. I'm always grasping after this thing or I'm always, you know, spending my energy doing something that feels fruitless, you know, at the end. And why am I doing, asking those questions of myself? I've gone through the exercise of, I can even think of, you know, like teachers of mine or whatever who would say, you know, you really need to lower your expectations. And that is just such like a death blow, you know, when you feel passionate about something or when you have that drive inside you to go after something, you need to lower your expectations. Just, I've tried that. It does not work, really. I mean, it it might give you a little bit of freedom from the frustration of wanting something that you haven't been able to get, but it does not it's not a solution it doesn't solve it and Scott I mean that was a funny Freudian slip God does not want us to go through life like feeling defeated and melancholy and lowering our expectations right Right. so and that and that brings me to my big question about this book Uh which is what about resurrection right he doesn't talk about it at all so oh, he does. He does. Well, yes. he he folds it into. He says, "There's like three pages." There's like three pages. Because oh, I, I, well, good. The, I mean, the whole ch- there's a the you know the major chunk of the book is about the crucifixion. It's definitely his sweet spot, as you say. But because I was paying attention 
near the end, when I first read the word resurrection, because you had said that to me before. Well, I would love to to hear him keep going. Yes, with all exactly. of these things. So, like, he's gotten up to crucifixion, and I'm and then sorry he has if I two it. pages. It's oh. just two pages. But this is what I think branches into: How do you live this? Right. You know, because up till now, you're still kind of questioning, like, well, if I let it all go, if that, if the MacGuffin whispers to me, I'm not the thing. And I have to accept that. Like, I don't repress that. I don't deny it. I don't collapse in despair over it. Well, then what do I do? And he says, uh, the way of resurrection opens up a different type of understanding. One that is not affirmed intellectually, but lived. This is page 145. We see this joy in the life of Jesus, who was at one with the source out of which everything arose, and thus was able to embrace life even in the darkest hour enjoying a meal with his friends when he knew that he would soon be executed. To go through the event of crucifixion does not then mean that we are unified with that which will make our lives complete, nor that we are given some secret knowledge that will abolish our ignorance, but that we can live without being complete and can celebrate mystery instead of being afraid of it. Not only is the fiction of gaining certainty and satisfaction exposed in the crucifixion and resurrection, but more importantly, the crucifixion and resurrection are names we give to the freedom from these oppressive fictions. So, again, mind-bending. Yes. So he does talk about resurrection. I apologize for A my... A piece. Ignorance. No, I, I understand why you say it. But I want him to go on more about it. Like, exactly. in the same way. In the same way that he's kind of broken down original sin and idolatry and the law... I want him, and crucifixion, of course, I want to hear more about how he would talk about resurrection in that light. Yeah. And what God is up to with that, if you will. I wanted to ask one provocative question. Okay. Am I making an idol of this podcast? (laughs) That's a good question. He doesn't, he acknowledges, I'll just say, like, in terms of reading the book, he acknowledges that there are things that you pursue because you care about them. Livelihood and, you know, caring for your family. Like, you have, there are motivations that are pure and aren't the thing that's sort of plaguing you, um, I guess. Right. He does explain of, that really well. He does. Yeah. So, does this fall in the category of, I see this more as a passion for you coming alive than I do as the pursuit of showing people something or, well, like you said about acting, arriving. You know, I've arrived. I'm doing this because I I need to know that I can, you know, or something to that effect. I'm putting words in your mouth, I know. I think it is birthed from the frustration of, <laughs> we've talked about this already, spending time, you know, in circles and conversations that feel like they go nowhere in terms of what is the life we are here to lead as Christ followers. And that they are very, in my experience in, say, small groups or something, you know, is that everybody knows the right answer and they just say the right answer and they comfort themselves and each other with the right answer. But it doesn't change anything. It doesn't move anyone. It doesn't... doesn't spur anyone on to good works. Or even if it does... Maybe it does. That was a terrible thing to say. No, I don't think it's terrible. Sometimes that's true and sometimes it's not. Right. I'm a student, not an expert. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Very handy. (laughs) But 
I mean, it leads me to the thought, this might be discombobulated, but I was thinking what he gets at when he just, those two pages about resurrection, what he gets at is that suddenly when you can let go of this scaffolding and let it disintegrate, which is what deconstruction is, let's face it, no matter what piece of your faith is falling apart, you're worried that there's going to be this gaping hole underneath that you won't be able to survive. You know, you, you'll have to leave things behind and it feels like painful, it feels like a death. And it is. And you're afraid there won't be life beyond it. But there is, right? There's something underneath that holds. There's something deeper, you know, that comes about. And I don't know that I fully understand. In some ways, it just feels like words. But he talks about resurrection waking you up to what love does. You know, that God is not this being to be approached and idolized, but is the... He doesn't say lens, but it is the way, like you said, that you can then find love in the world, that you can see beauty in the world. Um, I should find the quote. All right, so I'm reading from, I'm going to jump around a little and just capture some pieces that I've underlined, but it's pages 138, 139, and maybe 140. He says, we may say that God is the name we give to the experience where things are called into existence for us. In this way, it can be said that God is not seen, but is testified to in a particular way of seeing. Love does not say, look at me, but invites us to look at another. Unlike the idol that tries to capture our gaze, the God testified to in love avoids our direct gaze and invites us to be taken up by the beauty that surrounds us. I thought that was really incredible. Like God is not saying, come and worship me. He's, he's stepping out of the way and letting us see what we would worship him for, really. I don't know. I don't it makes me think of the way I've heard the Holy Spirit described mm-hmm. as being um, shying away from the, the limelight. I, uh-huh. I read that somewhere. The Holy Spirit does not draw attention to itself uh, and so, anyway, it reminded uh-huh. me of that, that maybe sometimes in the Trinity there's certain, certain of the three that uh-huh. are, for any different topic, are helpful to see into the truth of it. So, yeah. I don't know, I think of the Holy Spirit. When you read that, it made me think Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. It goes on to say, the idol is seen as beautiful only until it is grasped, and then we discover that its beauty was a fiction. In contrast, it would seem that as we stop trying to grasp God as beautiful, we discover that the source of all beauty is indirectly discovered. Love then infuses the world with meaning regardless of what one believes about it. By revealing God as love, the Christian tradition rejects the idea that God is a meaningful being in favor of the idea that God is that which lights up our world, rendering it meaningful to us. This means that unlike the idol, which seems meaningful until grasped, the moment we lay down the idea of God as meaningful and find the world infused with meaning, we bear witness to the meaningfulness of the divine. So again, it's hard language in terms of like, it feels like it rolls back over on itself. And so I feel like I'm just glimpsing it Mm -hmm. and then it drifts away, you know, like a Well, one thing he does, he, he describes several services that have taken place that he considers. Yes. And so 
you know, some of this is hard to read. It gets a little like it's just philosophical. intensely philosophical. Yes. So then you read those descriptions of those services and you get sort of a more visceral understanding uh-huh. of what he's talking about. Yeah. So I think those are really interesting. Yes. And especially as a theater artist. I was going like, to say, what did you oh my think gosh, about it when you were reading them? need a lot of them. actors to pull this up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was, I found it very exciting. Me and too. I've always said like kind of my elusive sweet spot, or maybe this is the idol, I don't know, is that where, where theater and church meet. Like that's that's yes. where I'm at home, but I can't find that home anywhere. Right, right. I can try to make that happen. Did you at my feel church. like this came close? Yes, what he was describing. Yes, very close. Was that comforting to to know? No, that, it was no. exciting uh-huh. and also a little melancholy because I just felt like I where? it will never happen. Yeah, I, you know, yeah. Where can I do that? Like, well, and we're we're in quarantine. We're COVID. You oh, know, gosh, like yes. yeah. So you have that level of it too. Yes, but I found that very exciting. Yeah, that you could just dream up events like that right they're not church they're not theater it's kind of this event that is just meant to but then he also says too like maybe that one was different from another example he gave where the he doesn't use the word magic but the magic happens the transformation happens when this group commits to doing this regularly you know right right and so like maybe it's the meal it's the meal one uh, where they sit down at a dinner and you're um, introduced to someone who would be very different from somebody that you might normally talk to or meet and they have a different view of things and whatnot. And so you're giving permission to each other to be the other, mm-hmm. you know, and engage in that and, and, and learn how to listen and learn how to approach one another. And, and listen differently. That, yes. that really captivated me about this book. Yes. And I want to do that. I uh-huh. want to be able to listen differently like that. Yeah, me too. What else can we say about it? I, I I would recommend it. I really would. I mean, I know that we're not here to recommend books or not, but um, I just think it. If you want to have a good conversation in your small group, <laughs> no, sorry, that was a bad joke. <laughs> this book would never be appropriate in a small group. I guess it depends on how I know, trusting just... your small group is and how willing, how much isn't working for them. You know? I, I do think that even if you are comfortable in a very traditional church, yep. this book would be a good read to sort of, even just to push back against and say... Well, it's certainly a different way to see. Yeah, just in terms of practicing, considering other ideas. Yes. And I, it appeals to me very much, much, I, I mean, I know we said that, like, I don't know... We haven't chosen all the books we're going to do this season, but one of the books I read this year was The Universal Christ by Richard Rohr. And I know we've already done a book by Richard Rohr, so, you know, maybe we'll talk about it this season, maybe we won't. But, again, like, mind-bending in the sense of, like, I feel like I need to read it more than once. I feel like it changes the way I see. But not fully, because I revert back to how I've always seen, you know. Right, well, and, you know, it's not linear. Mm-hmm. It's, it's you know, the faith journey is not linear. Right. And so, and it's not, it's not even a spiral. It's right. just like, it's, I don't know, it's... Um, bumpy. Bumpy. <laughs> I don't know if that's what you were going no. for, but that's what came to mind. It's just sort of infinite. It's sort of what I was thinking. Like a faith journey, it's beyond us. It's kind of not in our, it's not in our control, that's for sure. Well, what he's talking about, the mystery and the uncertainty. And this is the year for 
grappling with uncertainty. You know, as Americans, we've, I don't think, ever been, certainly not in our lifetimes really as a whole, pushed to deal with uncertainty the way we are now. I should speak for as a white person. That kind of uncertainty has never been at my doorstep so much as it is now. And learning to live with that and learning to accept that and learning to navigate it and not let it frighten or cause me to withdraw or stop engaging and all the choices we have to make all the time now and judgment calls we have to make. And he talks about getting comfortable with that and embracing it, Yeah, you know, as the real reality, which makes sense to me. One last thing I wanted to say about it, um, the one piece that I thought, because I've asked myself a bunch of times now, like, well, how would I live that way? How would I live differently? Because he does talk about, you know, leaning into this new way of being in Christ as if, you know, which reminds me of some of the things that I've heard and read about what Martin Luther King Jr. talks about, the beloved community, you know, and during the civil rights movement of living as if that was a reality and what that meant, you know, for people, the risks they took. And how do I live as if this is true? And the only thing I could really come up with that gave me that sense of letting go of the things that seem like they're going to bring happiness to me in order to accept the reality that I'm in and embrace it is the practice of gratitude. And, you know, now here we are on the doorstep of Thanksgiving and it's a time when, you know, you do the typical, like, what are you thankful for this year? I can just imagine what some of the conversations are going to be this year in 2020. You know, what are you thankful for? And yet we've, you know, been down this road of gratitude is the hard work of acknowledging the beauty in the midst of the everyday, in the midst of what can be painful, in the midst of loss. Um, It's there. It's still there. You know, it's also true. And that seemed like to me a practice that would lend itself to living this way even when you know in the middle of the book he shows that diagram of have you ever seen that one where like there's like the abyss you know like, yes. it was like a v and you know the per- there's a stick figure on one side and there's this abyss that's the separation that's the gap you know and god is on the other side and then what makes the bridge is the cross you know the cross falls into that gap and and the person can then walk across and be you know like with god god can then be in your presence and all of that cuz jesus has paid the price and what he talks about is jesus is the ground that the person is walking on you know like the earth like that I don't know somewhere in scripture the ground of my being you know like just that he said that solid he says that in the interview with Rob Bell okay ground of my being yes it's such a beautiful elusive kind of description of a way to be in the world and um, I'm challenged by that and I remember thinking years back um, different heartaches you know like I've I always looked at that, that diagram has been in my life for a long time, um, as Jesus being down in the pit. Like, that was where I found him. It wasn't, he didn't provide a bridge over the pit. Like, the pit was the thing where I had to let go of, you know, the God that didn't exist anymore. The God that doesn't allow those things to happen. The God that saves, you know, cures people and, you know, makes miracles happen. And all those things that don't always happen. And I found Jesus in the pit, you know, and thankfully, 
which leads to 10 other questions that he would bring up, you know, about that. Like, am I making Jesus the idol, even though I'm saying that? (laughs) So have fun with this one, because it will really take you down a path. Yes, it will. (laughs) So do you want to give us a closing benediction? Ah, I feel like I've rambled and rambled now. Okay. Should I, Um, or should you? I think, do you have a benediction in mind? I guess I, I, I do have one, so. You do? God of mystery, help us to be unafraid of the uncertainty and the unknowns and to believe that you are real in the midst of that. Help us to let go of our idols. Help us to see the way we are constantly making idols and to gently excuse them. (laughs) May this book find itself into the hands of the people that need it. And thank you for this beautiful day. Yes. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.